You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. Thanks for joining in. On our last podcast on Ozone, we had a little laugh about Boudreaux never having been ice fishing in his entire life, but he wants to try, so we decided to do a podcast for beginners that gives a high-level overview on ice fishing-related gear. I ice fish quite a bit living here in Minnesota, between fishing on my own and fishing with my buddies. I have exposure to a ton of different shelters, electronics, augers, techniques, Ultimately, there are way too many specific brands to try and discuss in one podcast, so I tried to focus more on the generalities like hub-style shelter versus flip-over, sensitive jigging rod versus noodle rod, underwater camera versus flasher, things like that. And of course, the ATA show just finished up this year, so while neither of us were able to attend, unfortunately, of course we have to start the podcast off talking about some of the cool things that we heard about from the show. So have you seen anything out of the ATA that you thought was interesting? Uh, yeah. What was his name? Um, some off-the-wall brand quiver, and it functioned – basically it didn't have arrow grippers. Mm-hmm. It had a plunger system, so it had a spring in the hood that you put the point of your broadhead or your um, uh, field point in, Yep. and then you – pushed in and then it had basically a spot that the knock set up against so then it used like one pound of tension to hold the arrow in there instead huh. of using arrow grippers thought it, it was different kind of unique also along the quiver line of things i saw that tight spot came out with a second arrow gripper that you can add onto your quiver yeah we were talking about that i know and i'm gonna pick one seen up. Them come out with that it's like they were so listening yeah, I think they knew they what i wanted they could read my mind <laughs> i think that was probably a big complaint from a lot of people I mean, um, overall, I'm it worked sure. pretty good for, you know, fixed blade or expandable broadheads most of the time. But for me, it was an issue when I used, like, blunt tips for small game. They just wouldn't work. Right. So. And then I saw Sitka came out with a, a bow carrier. Yeah. That, um, did you see the Primo surround view blind? Yeah. I want to get one of those. <laughs> That's pretty. I want to see it in person first. And my question is, I haven't seen this yet, but is that mesh shoot throughable? Uh, That's even a word? I don't know. Um, that I'm not sure. I didn't sure. see I anybody mention anything about it. Yeah, that would be interesting if you could shoot through the whole entire thing. <laughs> if it was all made out of shoot through mesh, that'd be pretty crazy. And then the uh, the new archery products, their uh, mantis blinds. I like the design of them. I'm not sure if I saw that one. Oh, so they um, so the guy that created one of the two guys that created double bull blinds. Mm-hmm. His name's Keith Beam. He I guess has been working with when after he sold double bull to primos i guess he's kind of started working with new archery products to come up with a blind and he's built a two hub and a three hub blind and i think his three hub blind actually has more square footage than a traditional five hub blind is it kind of asymmetrically shaped yeah i did actually see pictures of that i'm pretty sure yeah i like the like i like the hub design of that but i like that 360 view of the the primos i wish those two would get together and use <laughs> fabric and design it'd be great primos also came out with a cell cam 
which is yeah, something like that they didn't have before. 199 bucks yeah. or something like that. It was pretty pretty reasonable. Yeah. That's yeah, probably one of the more reasonable priced cell cameras that I've seen. Which that'll be interesting because I mean usually it seems like if you pay with anything trail camera, you could get a hit or miss at paying low cost for a trail camera. So Yeah, and especially something cellular based. Uh, right. you know, you kinda gotta rely rely quite a bit on the camera. Yeah, that's why I like buying stuff like that from either a place like Cabela's or a place like Amazon where I know that if I test it out for a couple of weeks in the backyard or whatever and I got a lemon or it's not working for whatever reason, I can chip it back right away and get a good one. Yeah, exactly. That's the downfall. With like, you know, First Light has now went the way of Kuyu, so they're no longer selling in retailers. Yes, I saw that. They'll sell on Amazon, uh, but it looks like they're getting rid of all their retailers that I know of. So it's going to be interesting, especially now that they've came out with their new Merino Wool, uh, Merino X or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. You know, I was that's a big gamble for a lot of things because you're you know you're taking that gamble of you know people not wanting to order it or wanting to be able to get their hands on it and try it first right i mean so i ordered a lot of first light back before i really had the option to try it on and a lot of local stores now they have it in a couple of places that are pretty close by to me um but for a while it was big risk and when i've ordered like stuff from kuyu in the past too it's like yeah i should have got the other size like my yukon gators i ordered the wrong size and i had to pay you know 10 or 15 bucks to get them exchanged I know that's it's ridiculous. Hopefully, though, it'll mean that their online inventory doesn't go out of stock on the popular sizes quite as quickly as it usually does. Yeah, who knows? I mean, it's that's something that's always been interesting about First Light is they seem to run out of sizes relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that'll that'll change some. For me, the great thing I've got Black Ovis is here in Salt Lake. They're like maybe five minutes from my work, ten minutes from my work. So you can go down there and they have like a little storefront and, you know, you, anything that shows up on their website or on Camo Fire, you can go down there and they'll go pull it out of the warehouse so you can look at it and actually get your hands on it. Huh. And then you can, I like, I can buy it out of the storefront. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's pretty nice. Great group of, group of guys too. Yeah. I've ordered a few things from them. I got their game bags. Yeah. That's what I've got too. I've got their game bags. Um, I picked up their Merino liner gloves as well as their, um, 190 uh, boxers as well. They're Merino boxers. Have you done any more research into ice fishing opportunities out in Utah? No, I haven't. We're, we've had a crazy light, mild winter to say the least. Um, we got oh, about 13 inches of snow yesterday. That's the second measurable snowfall we've had all year. Um, so a lot of places, there's a lot of open water still. Uh, we froze over for a brief amount of time, but then we had like 12 or 15 days above 50. Oh, wow. So it ended up melting, melting everything. So now we're, you know, we're hovering 40s, you know, down into the teens at night. But What's so normal kinda, for this time of year? Uh, normal would be high of about 35, 36, um, somewhere in that range. But typically stay below freezing. Um, the ground freezes up, everything freezes up, but we just have not had that this year. We're hurting for moisture. We actually have been well below average for snowfall here in Minnesota, too. Cold temperatures, not so much. We've had plenty of cold weather, but not a lot of snow, which has meant that so far this season, there's been a lot of ice, a lot of good ice. Um, There's been years in the past where, you know, like late December, if you're going on a wheelhouse trip, it'd be really risky. You might not be able to bring the wheelhouse out. You might have to go out in like a four-wheeler and a pop-up house. 
But yeah, we've had lots of ice so far. So speaking of that, maybe we can just jump into this. What's the ice recommendations for ice thickness recommendations for kind of what is a general consensus on what you can take on ice? Yeah. So, I mean, usually the DNR websites will have little recommendations on like posters on their website, but typically with it, say for like walking, it's like four inches. You can get by on less, but that's kind of like a, a nice safe value. Uh, a pickup truck, you're looking at like 12 to 14 inches, a bigger sleeper, like a wheelhouse, 14 plus depends on how big it is, how many axles there are, that type of thing. Uh, you got a smaller car, usually around like 10 inches. You're, you're probably completely fine. There's always going to be scenarios where if you have real good solid ice, you can get by with less ice than what the recommendation would say, but it's a really big risk. Cause you don't right. know if that ice is going to be good. The entire lake, you might have soft spots, especially if the lakes have, you know, like, uh, if they're like a spring lake or, or something like that, you can have some really poor areas or if you have any current so, inflow, there's a lake pretty close to the twin cities called Lake Minnetonka. It's a pretty big bass fishing lake and uh, party lake. And anytime you have bridges, the ice gets really poor. And so there's usually at least a couple of vehicles that pop through every year. <laughs> So some type of thermal anomaly, in, anomaly, geez, anomaly in the lake, where you know, like you said, maybe a spring or a warm current, like a warm water discharge from a, you know, a nuclear plant or something like that, obviously is going to be really affecting on it. Yep, yep, thermal or or actual physical current. Yeah, those are the two main things that can really affect the ice. All right. Yeah, I seen the video you posted the other day on your Instagram, and it looked more like you were muskox hunting than you were actually <laughs> ice fishing. It was pretty brutal. That I think was, you said it was like negative thirty or something, and the wind was howling. That was actually the warmest. The warmest point of the trip was when I took that video. It actually Holy was. Smokes. I mean, the temperature had gotten up to like negative four, I think, but the wind was just whipping like you could see in that video. So the wind chills were around negative thirty, if I remember right. But when we got up there, the morning it was like. 24 25 below and it had been like that for a couple days yeah so we always seem to have the worst luck when we go on our wheelhouse trips i think three out of the last five trips we've had real big cold fronts that have timed exactly when we go up to take our wheelhouse trip either on like lake of the woods or red lake and we'll have below zero temperatures and wind because then like the next the very next couple of days after we left the temperatures came back up into like the 30s so you're Man. looking at like a, a 40, 50 degree temperature swing in a couple of days. Yeah, that's crazy. I don't, I don't, never been in temperatures like that. So I don't know. That'd be pretty rough. It's not terrible. If you, if you're in a wheelhouse, it's not bad at all. Um, it sucks when you got to like pack up and, you know, if you don't have like hydraulics, if you got to do the hand cranks, then it can get kind of, uh, kind of dicey. Um, but if you, as long as you dress for it, it's really not that bad because you're spending a limited amount of time outside. Right. So I you just want to kind of dive into that and like some of the basic equipment needs. Again, keep in mind, I've never done any ice fishing, so most of this is new to me. I mean, I hear you referencing a wheelhouse, but I kind of have an idea that that's yes. a trailer that you pull behind, can raise and lower to the ice basically. Yes. And then pull well, it around compared to like a ground blind style hut, whatever right. they call them. Wheelhouses are ice fishing and luxury. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's the best way to put it. So there's, there's a few different types of setups that you can have along the range. Obviously the easiest setup, the least investment is you just walk out or drive out onto the ice 
and you sit on a bucket. You go out in mild temperatures. You have an auger. You have your tackle, including your rod and you know line and maybe a tip-up, anything else you're going to use. Uh, and you have an ice scoop, and you have some kind of electronics, preferably that's going to make your uh, ice fishing efficiency go way up, having some kind of electronics. Um, and then to step up from that, you're going to have some kind of uh, a shelter, either a hub blind type of shelter, and they make those either non-insulated or insulated, and usually you got to screw them down just so the wind doesn't blow them around. Or you actually have sleds that can, they have rail systems that expand, and then you can flip them over. They're called flip-over shelters. And those you can actually put all of your gear in, and you can walk out from shore and just kind of drag all your stuff. And like, it's basically like an otter sled, like if you can imagine one of those that has all your gear in it. And then once you get to where you're going to fish, you can extend those rails and pull the roof over your head. And so those are going to be a lot heavier typically. Um, and they're not, so if you have like a, a snowmobile or a truck or a car that you're taking to get onto the, out onto the ice, the hub shelters are usually going to give you a little bit more floor space to work with. But if you want to be able to walk out onto the ice, then going with like a, a flip over style is going to usually be a little bit more versatile of an option. So say somebody like me thinking about getting into ice fishing what would you recommend? I mean, for here, you know, would you recommend insulated pop-up or would you recommend a sled style or just start without one, you know, and just try to go the days where you could go with just an auger and not necessarily needing one? Well, without knowing your, your normal ice fishing setup, like I don't know what kind of species you're necessarily targeting or if it's something you can do close to shore or if it's something that usually you got to go way out there. Um, like when we were out in Lake of the Woods, we were five and a half miles out from shore. Um, that's not, that's not something you can do just walking out. Um, but if you want to get a taste for it, don't let the investment be something that holds you back. Buy a rod, buy a scoop, buy an auger, or go find a friend and go out with him that somebody that already has an auger and kind of knows what they're doing. That's going to be your best bet, at least to get your feet wet and kind of learn, uh, you know, how to fish in that area. Yeah, that's kind of my my goal is I've got a buddy who does it, um, you know, co-worker basically who's done it for years. And, you know, they typically go a few times a year. So I told him to let me know when they go because I just like to go, I mean, even if not to fish, just to see what it's like to see the setup. Obviously, I'd want to fish. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to see kind of what, what it's about and, and everything like that. Yeah. So assuming you go out with your buddies and you get bit by the bug and you want to do it some more, the next step would be to get, I guess, three main things. One would be the tackle side of things. Get a rod, reel, line setup that's suitable for the species you're going after. That's probably going to be your easiest step, your easiest decision. The other one's going to be the shelter. The other one's going to be the auger. So on the shelter side of things, we kind of touched on it a little bit already. Your main choices are either the flip over or the hub style. I personally have a flip over. And it's just because it's more versatile. I can walk out with all my gear. Whereas if I had a hub style, then I can, you know, carry the hub style in like the back of a truck or I can throw it on like a, a sled that's attached to like a snowmobile, but I can't just walk out with that option. So it's a little bit more limited. Um, that's why I have the, the flip over and you can find deals usually, um, on any of your major major sporting retailers, usually you can find better prices than what the original MSRP is going to be. Personally, I 
prefer the insulated. It's going to weigh a lot more. The fabric is a lot heavier, but you're going to use a lot less fuel to keep the shack warm. Um, so like I'll have a little buddy heater usually inside my, my shelter if it's cold enough. Sometimes you get like the 30, 40 degrees and you're dressed warm enough where you really don't need it at all. But on those cold days, especially if it's windy, uh, a buddy heater is a big necessity. And so you can get that little tiny enclosed space heated up and you got the, the sides of it insulated with snow and you end up going through a lot less fuel to keep the air warm in one of those insulated shelters. So a lot of times it's worth the extra weight uh, for me. And then for the augers, so your basic main choices are going to be electric power source, gas power source, or propane power source. And then there's a lot of different options within that. So gas has been around forever. Propane is a relatively new thing and electric is, it's taken off relatively, relatively new. Um, and so the gas side of things, they have a lot of power, which is great. You can pretty much get a gas auger to do whatever kind of requirement you're going to need to do, but they're very heavy. You got to deal with obviously putting the gas in, uh, the oil, you got to start it up. So if you think of any kind of small engine problems that you could have potentially with a small engine, you could potentially have those kind of problems with the gas auger. Uh, your gloves are going to, if you get any gas on your gloves, it's going to be that kind of smell. You're going to have some exhaust. So you don't want to try and fire that thing up in a closed space. All those type of things come along with gas augers. But since there's so many of them around, you can oftentimes find deals on used ones, uh, which are well below MSRP. Propane, I haven't really used them that much. Um, so I don't have a ton of experience with them, but basically they're going to be very similar to the gas auger in terms of what they can do. However, they run on just those little propane cylinders that you can screw in as a, so you don't have to worry about the, you know, getting gas all over your hands. And, uh, with the electric, electric is kind of what I've settled on. And with electric, you got basically one of two options. You can get a commercial electric auger. That's all set up something like the ion auger where it's just a, like a 40 volt. I think they make a new one now that might even be a, a different voltage, but it's basically an auger that runs on a big lithium ion battery. Uh, you can get them in most of your major drill bit sizes, six inch, eight inch, 10 inch. And you basically buy it from the store for, you know, four to 500 bucks, depending on the model. And you can drill your holes with that. You don't have to start it up. It's just basically you, you'll pull the trigger and it goes, you turn it off. It's done. There's no on or off. You just make sure you keep the battery warm. They can fire through actually a surprising amount of ice considering something that's electric in cold weather. Usually those things don't go together very well. As long as you take care of the battery, they actually perform pretty well in my opinion. And then the other big advantage of those is that along with them being more clean, you can use them in enclosed spaces. So a lot of times, like even guys in the wheelhouses, they'll have, you can bring those electric augers inside the wheelhouse, refreshing up your holes if they've frozen over overnight and you don't have to worry about the exhaust fumes getting inside that enclosed space. Which, yeah, that makes sense. Right. And then a step different from the ones that you can buy commercially that a lot of guys have been doing lately is you can actually convert a drill, just like a cordless power drill. And you can actually chuck in a hand auger bit and drill your holes that way. And if you do that, there's, it basically depends a lot on which drill you have. You need to have a really 
good quality, high torque drill. I've used a couple of the cheaper Ryobi 18 volt ones, uh, 12 volt one I wouldn't recommend at all. And the Ryobi ones that I tried, a little bit lower torque rating, worked okay for six inch bits, eight inch bits, they kind of bogged down a little bit with uh, the eight inch bit, the actual, actually the drill that I prefer, the one that I bought this year was a Milwaukee M18. And that drill with two five amp hour batteries, I bought for 230 bucks, I think. And then I have a eight inch hand auger bit, a strike master laser that costs like 70 or 80 bucks new. So for the ballpark of a little over uh, 300 bucks, I have basically an electric auger that I can drill 30 holes and 20 inches of ice plus on one battery and I could swap the other battery and so I can get over 60 holes and 20 inches of ice with that setup. It's super lightweight. I can at any time chuck out that uh, auger bit and I can put in an adapter that I can use to screw in spikes to hold down my uh, tent. I can use it around the house for any of the standard, you know, hardware tasks I might have. So for a lot of those reasons, I've kind of, I really prefer that drill option. Yeah, it just seems like a much more versatile option because like you said, it's, you know, you can use it multiple times and even carrying it, you know, because you can chuck the auger bit out. I'm assuming it would pack down smaller. Right. And like I said, you can use it in the house as well. Is there any, you know, so we t you mentioned you touched on a basically hole diameter just a little bit, mm -hmm. six and eight inch. Is there any, you know, for any reason do you need to go bigger than that? Would there be a downfall to using a drill in certain situations? You know, do you go bigger than eight inches yeah i wasn't wouldn't use a drill for a 10 inch hole uh eight is the biggest i would go eight i'm perfectly comfortable with but 10 i mean it's it's not just like a a small increase on the amount of torque that it takes to drive a 10 inch bit it's if you, you know look at the surface area of the ice from an eight inch circle to a 10 inch circle it's a pretty dramatic difference um so for a 10 inch I think like on the electric side of things, I think Ion just came out with a new model that has a 10 inch bit and it's significantly more expensive. I think it's around $600. So if I was gonna use a 10 inch uh, auger, I would probably go with a gas model or a propane. I, I don't know if they make one. I'm assuming, assuming they do, but um, that's a lot of money to spend just to get a 10 inch hole. And realistically for a, a 10 inch hole, there's very few scenarios where you would actually need it. Um, is it species dependent on what kind of... It's very much species dependent. And, I mean, you can fit just about any species in the continental U.S. out of an 8-inch hole. Um, you can fit a lot of them out of a 6-inch hole. It's just a lot harder when you get a lot of deep ice, <laughs> a lot higher risk of bumping the fish off at the bottom of the hole. Or if you get a 40-plus-inch pike, it's not going to fit really <laughs> through a 6-inch hole. Um, so I think the, the people that have used the 10 inch bits tend to be the guys that are going for like big lake trout or something like that. And they really need that extra hole size or really want it. But even then I've seen some big trout come out of eight inch holes. So the other th thing with the 10 inch hole, it's a lot easier to step in one and some of your round tip ups, the ones that fit in your, uh, like your five gallon pails they don't fit quite as well over the top of the hole. So eight, eight inches are good all around. If you're fishing for pan fishing, you usually get by with six inch. Okay. Yeah. That's something that I, you know, I always see it again, most everything I don't, never done it. So everything I've seen, you know, I've always wondered. So these, it's a good place for me to get these questions out and, mm -hmm. you know, kind of help the listeners as well too, if they're new to ice fishing. So let's, what about, um, 
gear set up like rod, reel, um, you know, line, things like that, what should somebody look for? What have you had good luck with? You know, what have you, you know, tend to shy away from? Okay. So again, it's very species dependent and also technique dependent. And then there's also a quality component within that. So if you're looking for something like a panfish rod some or a small trout, or I don't know what you guys have out in Utah, I'm assuming you probably have some of the same fish we do. Um, I would assume, but if you have, if you're fishing for panfish, one type of rod that would work well would be a rod that is very high sensitivity, graphite based. And this is a rod where you're basically going to be able to feel everything. It's going to have a very fast action tip. You're going to be able to have very fine control of over what your bait's doing. You can jiggle it in place, uh, with very fine control and you'll be able to feel the bites. The other style of rod is more of like what they would call a noodle rod that some of them are made out of fiberglass. Some of them have a different shape. That's a little bit flatter. So it bends more of the tip. Basically the idea is that you have a backbone uh, throughout most of your rod. And then the tip is very, very flexible and it's not going to be as sensitive of a rod. So you're not going to feel as much and you're not going to have as much fine control, but you're going to be able to see the bites a lot better on that type of a rod. So, you can use either depending on exactly what you're trying to do. I use the noodle style rod quite a bit when I'm going after panfish, just cause I can see those bites a lot of times when I wouldn't be able to feel them if I have like a heavy glove on or something like that. But there are guys that use both. Um, and then in terms of quality, I mean, you can buy a rod combo for 20 bucks at Walmart or fleet farm or anything like that. Or you can go up to the level where you're paying a hundred dollars for a custom rod and then you're paying, you know, 60, $70 for, a reel to pair with it. And again, it just kind of depends on your, your price range. You're obviously going to be able to catch fish on just about anything, but as with most, most pieces of gear, whether it's hunting or fishing or whatever, spending a little bit more money is usually going to get you a, a product that you're going to have a little bit more enjoyment or better feel out of. Is there any particular brands that you tend to, again, you know, we're kind of just going off your experience that yeah. you tend to lead to um, compared to others? Uh, whether it's for budget reasons or quality reasons? Uh, a lot of the rods that I've had have been like St. Croix, Clam, um, Tuned Up Custom Rods is a pretty popular custom rod maker here in the Twin Cities. There's a really big following of those. I'm sure there's a few others that I'm going to miss out on. There's a ton of brands. Like if you just walk into a Fleet Farm or a Cabela's around here, you'll be, you'll have overload, information overload from all the different stuff that's on the shelf. Um, so to be able to to really, I guess, pick a couple brands. For me, it's not necessarily the brand so much as it is the way that the rod feels. And if it has the exact uh, length that I'm looking for, it has the, you know, the right components. That's kind of matters more to me than uh, what the brand name is. So uh, some rods too will have lifetime warranties. That's always going to be huge with ice fishing gear. If you can get a lifetime warranty on something like a rod, uh, you're always, it seems like you're always likely to snap ice fishing rods for whatever reason because usually just putting the stuff in the bottom of a sled and then something else gets tipped over on top of it when you're driving or you go over an ice chunk or something so i like warranties <laughs> i think everybody does <laughs> so what about um so I, I like i said all this is coming off of social media so i've been seeing people like having actual like cameras underwater yes. watching their jig and then you see the fish finders, and they reminded me like the old hummingbird style where they light up. Mm -hmm. um, so do we? you want to go into some of that equipment, um, you know, 
fish finders or whatever they call them, depth finders. Yeah. And then the the cameras. Yeah. Let's let me. I'm gonna finish a couple. Finish up a couple of quick more notes about the the rod and reel type of thing, and then we can move on to electronics. All right, um, go for it. So we touched on like panfish stuff. For the most part, your your larger uh, game rods are gonna be somewhat similar in that you can either get the very sensitive uh, rod where you're gonna feel a lot. It's usually gonna be a more expensive rod, or you can have kind of the softer tip rod. And if I'm fishing for something like walleye, I'll usually like to have a nice sensitive rod for jigging. And then I like to have a little bit more limber um, noodle style rod for dead sticking, where basically you might have one rod that you're jigging with and then on the other hole three feet away, you have a rod where you basically just have uh, bait with a minnow swimming. And a lot of times that rod will pick up a lot of the fish that you don't catch jigging. And then uh, you also have tip-ups are very common. And there's a lot of variations in the tip-up. You have tip-ups, tip-downs, insulated, non-insulated. Again, I, I don't know if you have any, what kind of storage you have, but if you walk into something around here, you're going to be, again, overloaded with the different options that you can get for tip-ups. But basically, it's just a way of being able to set up a remote rod where you have, basically, you set up a tip-up, you got line. It's basically like a dead stick. You put your live bait on a hook or on some type of lure. You drop it down a certain distance away from the bottom, and then you set this tip-up and you put a flag down. And then once the fish takes the bait, uh, the spool starts unwinding and the flag goes up. And that's when you know you have a strike and the line is just uh, able to free spool until you come up and actually pick up the tip up away from the ice and then you grab the line. If you feel the fish on there, you give it a good tug to set the hook and then you pull the fish in hand over hand. The other thing with rods in terms of length that I think is important is if you're going to be getting a rod designed to be able to use outside when you're kind of hole hopping, bouncing around a lot, not really trying to stay in one location, usually a longer rod is going to be a little bit better. They load up a little bit better. It's easier to fight the fish with them. Uh, you don't have to stand quite so tightly over the hole. But if you want a rod that you're going to be using mostly for fishing inside of a small shack, a lot of times a shorter rod is going to be a little bit easier to use in that tight, confined space. Makes sense, obviously. Yeah. So that's kind of real high level, I guess, what you would, some of the things that you could try and use to determine what you want to buy. Right. And that's the biggest thing is like out here, you know, I honestly, I don't know. I know we have lake trout. I know we've got some, I'm pretty sure we got some yellow perch out here as well. So, you know, it just really depends on, you know, what species you're after, obviously, like with most things. Right. And I think for you, again, it's going to be huge just to go out with people that know what they're doing. Yeah, you're gonna hopefully, have, you know, you're going to have a little bit of different way of doing things everywhere you're at in the country. Even sometimes different lakes have different ways of doing things that are more popular than others. Yeah, hopefully if I get out and do some, we can do a part two of this and uh, yeah, touch base of this again. Definitely. Electronics is another area where there's a lot of different things out there. And it kind of depends a little bit on what your personal style is and what you like looking at as well as there's a huge range in price. So you have 2D sonars, which are going to be very similar to the units that you'd have on like a boat. You have flashers, which are probably the thing you were thinking of, where it's just like a, a round circle and you got little flashing lights yeah. all over it. Those are called yep. flashers. You have 
vertical flashers where it basically displays the same information you would have on that round flasher, but it displays it on like a just a, a two-dimensional, well, I guess it's like a one, more of a one-dimensional vertical graph. And then you have combinations of those things. And then you have the underwater cameras. So on the flasher side of things, they're probably the thing that most people think of when they think of ice fishing electronics is a flasher. They've been around for quite a long time. Uh, they're pretty reliable. They have good battery life. They're easy to see on bright days. And basically the way the flasher will work is that you'll have your bottom will create a hard return and it'll create a solid color. Usually like red will be like your strong signal. And then the rest of that unfilled area is basically your depth range. And so you can usually see your bait light up somewhere along that depth range and you can see fish show up as little bars of color somewhere in that range as well. So usually you can be jigging, you can see your bait, and then all of a sudden another line will pop up below your bait. You know, there's a fish coming in and then you can, from that point, try and determine how you need to adjust the way you're moving the bait in order to get that fish to come up and actually hit it. With a one-dimensional vertical flasher, it's pretty much the same thing. It's just a different way of looking at that same information. With a 2D graph, you know, so if you imagine you're on a boat and you got your typical sonar, that's basically what you'd be looking at. On the very far right side of the screen, you basically have the one-dimensional flasher, but then the entire rest of the screen is a history of what just happened. So if you're jigging, instead of just seeing your bait in real time move on like a flasher, you're seeing basically like a, looks like a little heartbeat on the screen. I kind of like that personally, just because I like seeing that short history to know what a fish liked, what he didn't like. Sometimes it, you miss things, I think, in real time. Uh, but if you look back and you can see the last 15 seconds of what's happened, you can say, oh, he, he liked what I did here. Let me try and replicate that again. Um, and I think it's, it's just a different way of looking at things. You might have three different people that all have different opinions on what they personally like the best. On some of your more expensive units now, they have flashers on bigger LCD screens and they have combinations of these different graphs. So like there's a Humminbird Helix that basically you can set it up to have your flasher on one side of the screen, your 2D sonar on the right side of the split screen, and then you have basically your 1D is going to be the right side of your, um, of your 2D sonar. So you can have everything on one screen. And I have a smartphone fish finder called the Deeper that I can pair via Wi-Fi with my cell phone that displays that exact same information. So it's got basically a split screen where I got a flasher on one half, I got the 2D sonar on the other half, and I can actually do a zoom 1D vertical flasher on that as well. Um, the big things between the various options other than what you're looking at are going to be battery life. And typically anything with an LCD screen is going to burn more battery life than something that just has a very simple display. Most of these units run off of your like nine or eight or seven amp hour sealed lead acid batteries. They're pretty heavy. A lot of these units will be able to fit in like the bottom three quarters of a five gallon pail, just to give you an idea of size. Uh, with the exception of that deeper that I have, which is you can fit it in your pocket. It's, it's like the size of a baseball and then it just pairs up with your phone. Then in terms of what you're looking at, 
certain models will have more depth of color. Like your very base model flashers will have usually like three colors. You'll have like green, yellow, and red. If you have a more expensive model, sometimes I added more colors, you get a little bit more depth, um, which can help you determine the size of the return and the size of the mark that there is. The other thing that will come into play is the, um, <clears throat> it'll come to me. <laughs> so with the one that you're talking about that pairs to your cell phone, have you noticed the battery life on that particular unit because it's using the battery on your cell phone to power the screen to be better? The unit itself, which is like the size of a baseball, that unit has like a six hour battery right. life. And since it's sitting in 34 degree water, usually I get like four hours, 15 minutes to four and a half hours of battery life on just that okay, unit. Yeah, I didn't think about that part. And then the cell phone depends on how bright you have the screen. Um, usually my cell phone will always die faster than the unit will, um, except for when I have it plugged into an external power source. So oftentimes I'll just have a battery bank that's hooked up 100% of the time to the cell phone that completely removes the cell phone battery life portion of the equation. Which makes sense. I didn't think about the actual unit with the battery in it being in cold water to drain the battery faster. So with the other ones, the flashers and stuff like that, I'm assuming there's a cord from the the sensor to the battery unit because I'm guessing it just sits right in the edge of the water. Actually, they no. So that puck that I the deeper puck basically sits on the surface of the water. It floats, and you can use right. it from a kayak. You can cast it from shore and reel it back in. But most of the flashers, they actually have a transducer on a cable that you can sink down to get to the bottom of the ice. So usually you'll have, depending on the depth of the ice, you'll have you know one to two feet of, of cord right. sitting below a float. So your transducer is sitting basically on a bobber uh, suspended beneath the ice. And that creates issues at times. The advantage of it is that you get a nice clean picture. There's no interference from the ice at all. The disadvantage is that it's pretty easy sometimes to get your line wrapped around those cords. And when that happens, a lot of times you can lose the fish. It usually happens a couple times on every wheelhouse outing that I've been on. Uh, you've been jigging for 15 minutes. You finally get a bite and just that action of jigging for 15 minutes, you've gotten the line wrapped around once around the transducer cable. You'll have one of your buddies go out and grab the cable to pull it out of the hole and he'll take the line up with the, the cable since it was wrapped around and the fish ends up getting off. So that's one of the downsides of pretty much any type of flasher unit. But it's, it, I mean, it's a give and take because, like I said, the advantage right. is, is that you get a little bit clearer picture of your bait in really thick ice. So target separation is the other thing I was was trying to remember earlier. Target separation is the ability to separate a signal and basically show two small things as opposed to one big thing. So if you have a cheaper unit, usually they'll have a worse target separation, which means you might have like a school of little bluegills or something that swims underneath your hole. And instead of looking like a school of little bluegills, it'll look like one big red mark. And you think you'll have like a giant pike or something down there. But in reality, if you drop down like an underwater camera, you'll be able to see, oh, it's actually just a bunch of really little fish. Whereas if you have a more expensive unit that has better target separation, you'll be able to differentiate a little bit better. If you have multiple fish down there, when one of those fish starts to make a move, you'll be able to see your bait between the fish. If you got a, if your bait is at one spot, the fish is a couple inches away. If you have bad target separation, it'll look like the fish is right on your bait and you can't see your bait at all. Whereas if you have better target separation, you can actually see that the fish maybe still is a little bit 
of ways to go. And again, that's one of those things where it's going to depend on the price of the unit that you get. And actually, surprisingly, this is one of those areas where the deeper actually is surprisingly a lot better than some of the other cheaper units. It's got like a half an inch target separation where I think like uh, I bought a, a Humminbird Ice 35 to test out. And that one has a target separation of, I think, two and a half inches. And all of your units are going to be a little bit different just depending on like which one it is. There's there's a couple major brands. There's like Markham, Vexilar, Humminbird that all make flashers. And there's way too many different options to actually go through, I think, in this podcast. But that just gives <laughs> you kind of kind of a basic overview of of what is out there and what some of the more important things to look for are. So what might be the benefit of a, a camera over a traditional flasher 2d camera has in my mind two huge one huge benefit and another really big benefit the huge benefit with an underwater camera is that you can drop that thing down and be able to see where you're at very specifically on the structure that you're trying to fish assuming you're fishing structure so if I'm using like a flasher or a deeper or 2d sonar or something and I'm trying to find a spot on a reef where I get the transition between like rock and sand or where I start to see some bigger boulders or a weed line. Sometimes you're guessing. A lot of times you're guessing. You can tell a little bit sometimes just by how strong the signal return comes back. If it's red or if it's yellow, indicating a harder or softer bottom. But if you have an underwater camera, you know instantly where exactly you're at in that transition line. Because oftentimes those transition lines can be areas where fish like to travel. The other big advantage with an underwater camera is determining species. So oftentimes you'll, you might set up in a new spot and you're getting fish that come in on your screen and they're not even paying attention to your bait and you're putting on different baits, trying to figure out what the heck you're doing wrong. And then you drop the camera down and you figure out it's like whitefish or some species that w you wouldn't even expect to catch on the lures that you're using for your target species. So that's two really big areas where I think an underwater camera plays a big role in, in somebody's system. So it's not necessarily something where I would use it hundred percent of the time while I'm out there, but I might use it two or three times on a particular trip. And the information that it gathers is very important. Which makes sense. I mean, I could see it really saving a frustration if you're, you know, fishing for one species and then it's everything you're seeing on your flasher is a completely different species. Oh yeah. You know, I could, I could really see that saving a lot of frustration because you're seeing it on there. Like, why am I not catching fish? And then you're like, Oh, that would be why for sure. And like I was out there last, well, yeah, yeah. Last night. And I was whole hopping, trying to find where the crappies were. And I dropped the transducer down in a hole and I could see what looked like a fish suspended six inches off the bottom. And I dropped my bait down there. I couldn't get a hit to save my life. I'm thinking the thing wouldn't even move. I'm just wondering what's going on. So I dropped the camera down there, found out it was just a weed that I had drilled basically right on top of in an otherwise open basin. And so that weed was showing up as a signal return on the graph. And without having the camera there, I would have been questioning why I wasn't able to get that fish to move. Well, that makes sense. Man. So... Is there anything else again, you know, I'm completely green to this. So there may be something that I'm completely missing that I've never even thought about on this, uh, gear wise or electronics wise that you can think of that you want to touch on. Um, if a scoop and a spud, if you're going to be fishing in uh, little ice, which it sounds like you might be a spud is a good idea to have for a safety standpoint. 
and also like picks. They make ice picks that you can basically drape over your shoulders or attach to your jacket that they're like safety picks where there's no, there's no point exposed, but if you push on it, then like a spring loaded sheath reveals like a sharp pick basically that can dig into the ice. So if you break through, you can grab those things and dig them into the ice and actually pull yourself back up onto the ice. Um, it seems like when I forget something that's important, it's usually the scoop, which makes it hard to carry the slush out of your hole after you drill the hole. If you take an auger and you drill a hole, usually there's going to be some slush that you're going to want to clear out. Um, sometimes scoopers will have little chisels on the back. So if it's cold enough where it starts to refreeze your holes while you're still fishing, you can take the backside of that scoop and just kind of chisel out that hole and just carry out the chips so you can keep fishing in those holes and keep reopening them. If you're going like the next day and there's like another inch of ice, then having that little heavier spud bar, which is a big, heavy steel bar, you usually need something like that to re-break those ice holes or have an auger that has like a chipper blade that's made for reopening old holes. So a spud is basically just a, a breaker bar basically used to break thicker ice that may refreeze in your hole. Yeah, it's got a chisel point on the end. It's okay. made for chiseling out ice. I was unsure why I was going to need a potato. <laughs> <laughs> it's for cooking fries out on the ice. Yeah, I was confused. I was like, a spud? And I was like, what's a spud? So I'm glad you kind of brought that back around and touched on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Heater. So anything else safety-wise? Uh, I know you you talked about the the thing to attach to the ice. Okay. Inflatable life jackets. Do they? I got a question. I'm, I don't fish a whole lot. So do they make them now that are – do they still make them automatic that when it hits the water it automatically inflates? Or is it all by a string that you jerk? Uh, they make both. You can get either manual ones or usually the more expensive ones are actually automatically uh, activated by water immersion by CO2 canisters. You could always just wear a, a typical life jacket that you would wear while like water skiing, but you're going to have to deal with the bulk. And again, this is really only a huge concern if you're fishing in potentially sketchy ice conditions. If I'm right, driving out nice. on 25 inches of ice in my pickup truck, I don't give it a second thought. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a, a life vest really isn't going to do you much inside a pickup truck when it falls in. So. Right. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that's that's really... Let's see, I got, I got rods. I got that scoop. I got lights, headlamps. Um, if you're going to cook anything, a buddy heater, minnow bucket. Minnow buckets that have aerators are big. A good chair, I'm guessing. Well, depending if you get a, a flip over or not. I mean, you can sit True. on the a flipped over five gallon pail. You can sit on a, a three legged stool that you have packed into your your sled, and then a lot of the flip over sleds have seats or benches built into them. I Other may have to that, come up and go ice fishing with you next year, especially if I don't get any down here this year. Well, there's still time this year. We'll probably be ice fishing <laughs> in March probably not going to melt anytime soon if it's that thick there's been plenty of times where we fish out in there's a time in college actually where there was ice fishing on lake of the woods during spring break and it was one of those like 40 50 degree days where you could be out there in a t-shirt but there's still enough there's still enough ice to easily support your weight the ice kind of breaks up it so it freezes from the surface down but then when it when it melts in the spring it kind of erodes so you'll have good ice, and then all of a sudden you'll have bad ice. 
Yeah, I'm assuming that it, you know, the sun helps melt it from the top. Then once it creates a puddle, that puddle begins to warm thermally, and then it heats everything under it and around it. Yeah, the way I understand it, it's more of a bulk thermal process to to break up the ice versus when you have a surface freezing that happens when the ice initially forms. Right. So rod cases, um, you know, what storage-wise, what do you do with your gear, you know, kind of what season winds down? Is there anything you need to take care of, um, make sure to store it a proper way? So during season, you have either soft rod cases or hard rod cases. And obviously, just like a gun case, the hard case is going to be a little bit more durable, give you better protection. I've used soft cases for several years and it seems like I always have issues with the rods getting tangled around one another or like I said earlier in the podcast something will fall on top of the rod case and it really doesn't offer a ton of protection it does help a little bit with tangles and helps from getting the hooks caught on certain things but I think sometime this year I probably will upgrade to a hard case that has some foam to actually hold the rods in place so they don't actually have the ability to move around quite as much after the season's over Uh, more long-term storage. Typically with all my rods, I have a a big rod case. I just turned my computer screen so you might be able to see it. But basically it's just a a case that I'm able to store my rods vertically. You don't want to store the rods where they're going to have some kind of a bend in them. Like leaning them up against like a wall is not good because they're going to have a little bit of bend at the tip and then that's just going to sit there for months on end. Um, and it could create a little bit of a set in the end of the rod. So you want to try and keep them as straight as possible. With your reels, usually you want to dra- uh, back out on the drag all the way. So you tighten down your drag when you're fishing, and then once you're done fishing, you back out that drag uh, so it's very loose. What's the benefit of that? Just curiosity. You know, it's good <laughs> good practice, but I'm not sure 100% of exactly why. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about it, I wouldn't see why the drag being tightened down in storage not being used could cause any type of damage to it. But again, I'm not any type of fishing expert by no means. It's usually recommended by the people that manufacture the reels. <laughs> then it's a good reason to do it. <laughs> That's always been it goes the back to that warranty. Right, right. And I mean, to be completely honest, like a lot of the stuff that I used growing up, I never did that kind of stuff. It's stuff that I do now because I... I spending my own money on stuff and I want it to last. <laughs> yeah. When you pay for things out of your own pocket, you tend to take care of them just a little bit more. <laughs> I think everybody's kind of figured that out at one point or another. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a couple big trips yet planned this year. Uh, we'll be going. So we just got back from Lake of the Woods. That was the place that we went up. We were super cold. We might go back up there again in mid-March for the Northern Pike pre-spawn. Basically this lake, I don't know if you've heard of Lake of the Woods or not. It's enormous, absolutely gigantic lake on the border of Canada. And toward the pre-spawn, these big Northern Pike will come in and they'll stage um, around the creeks that they go in and actually spawn in. And you can fish dead bait on tip-ups and catch pike that are well over 40 inches, which for any standard lake, inland in the state of Minnesota, it's going to be pretty hard to find pike that are that big. And they're fat full of eggs, so it's a pretty rare opportunity that you can get every year. So that would be a fun trip. And it's usually going to be a little bit warmer during that kind of a trip too. Um, we'll probably go to Mille Lacs a couple times yet this winter. 
one trip that I would love to do, and I've been trying to plan one for a couple of years now, I'm not sure if it'll happen this year or not, would be uh, Boundary Waters Wilderness Lake Trout Trip, which is basically where um, with the Boundary Waters, you can't use anything that's power. So that means it's a wilderness, right? You got to use a hand auger to drill through however many, how much, however much ice is there. You can't drive out there. You can't take a four wheeler. You can use sled dogs, but I don't have access to that. Unfortunately, (laughs) basically just, you walk out there, sleep either on the ice or at a campsite and just fish. So it's a different, completely different experience than something like wheelhouse fishing. And then of course those lakes are pressured so much less than a lot of the other big lakes that we fish. So the opportunity there for catching a lot of fish or, you know, catching a big one is increased. It's just more work. Oh, I can, I can uh, be in a wilderness, you know, you're not allowed to use any type of machinery or power tools. So, you know, I know the f- fishing up there in the summer, it's all kayak canoes, portaging and you know, all that. So, yeah, but I believe you can use electronics for not like electronic, like motors, but electronic electronics to see what's going on like the flashes that type of thing because people use those all the right. time in open water i'm assuming yeah. no problem with ice fishing either it'd be like using a gps in the wilderness in colorado right and the other thing about those lakes is they're not mapped very well so there's a little bit more of a guessing game that goes on i mean a lot of the lakes in minnesota and a lot of the other lakes around the midwest you can buy like lake master chips where they have the entire lake mapped out in one foot contours and that makes it immensely helpful for picking out spot on the spot type of locations where you have your GPS on. But a lot of the lakes up there aren't mapped very well because they don't have the capability to just go out there and map them with their power boats. So you I'd can be either funny to see somebody out there paddling around trying to map the bottom <laughs> of one of those lakes. Interestingly enough, I have a, a good friend of mine did that as basically one of his like Boy Scout or Eagle Scout uh, projects. He mapped out one of his local lakes in a, a canoe. <laughs> so let's touch a little bit on species. Um, I know you talked about, you know, varying species, but let's talk specifically about you. What are your favorite species to target and what are your favorite species to eat from that? Um, I don't, you may target one species, but not mm-hmm. necessarily like to eat it, but you may have a specific species that you like to eat. Um, so let's talk a little bit about species. I think my favorite species to target would probably be walleye. Uh, I like fishing for them. They're usually not easy to come by, especially if you're fishing in pressured lakes. They can get big enough to give you a heck of a fight. I mean, you can catch a 30-inch walleye is considered like a a pretty big trophy in most areas. Uh, But a good eater size is going to be like, you know, 14 to 17 inches, at least in my book. And they usually take a little bit more finesse and a little bit more thought and execution sometimes you can catch them just out in like random flats but a lot of times you're fishing on spot on the spot type of locations around structure so it's kind of a challenge as well as you know the fun to catch once you actually get them on the hook in terms of fish that i like to eat any kind of panfish is usually way up there you can eat pretty much unlimited panfish because they're so low in contaminants so if i'm looking for fish for the frying pan crappies bluegills, perch, those are all pretty high up the list because you can just catch a bunch of load of them. You don't have to worry about, you know, the little, the restrictions that the DNR will place on various lakes due to mercury or PCBs or anything like that. Um, crappies are usually near the top of my list just because I have access to so many uh, crappie locations very close to my house. I can basically take off after work, 
drive an extra 10 minutes and drive right out onto the lake and then stop the truck at my fishing hole, pop up in a couple holes and I can usually catch, you know, five to 10 crappies like our pretty close to our limit here and then just drive back home, still be home in time for a late dinner. Whereas like with a, a walleye trip, you can catch walleyes here close to my house in the Metro, but they're generally not going to be your best locations. So usually those are more destination trips. If I want to actually focus on walleyes, I usually go for a bit of a drive to get to a better lake. Makes sense. Northern pike are really fun to, to catch. Usually I don't jig for them that much just because they're a little bit, it seems like they're more apt to bite on uh, tip ups or dead bait in the winter than they are open season. They're very aggressive open season. Um, but tip ups are usually the way that you would fish for them uh, under the ice and tip ups are a little bit more hands off, a little bit more boring. I mean, it's fun if you're with like a group of guys and you're throwing a football around and drinking some, drinking some beers and you got some tip ups going, that's the fun way to fish for pike. Yeah. You know, walleye are probably my number one favorite fish to eat followed closely by crappie. Um, those are my two. So that would obviously be a good target for me, but I don't know that we have those out here in Utah, but who knows? Lake trout is at the top of my want to catch a lot more list. I have to drive a few hours. The closest I can go to actually catch lake trout would be probably Lake Superior. Certain years are better than others, just depending on how much ice they get out there and how far the ice extends. And I have a couple buddies up there that I want to be able to have take me out there to catch some lake trout, but a lot more of a consistent bite would be a place like the Boundary Waters or some of the lakes up in that corner of the state where you're talking like a four to six hour drive to get to some of those lakes. So it's a bit more of an investment to actually go up and do a lake trout trip. And I don't have a ton of experience actually chasing after him, but on a lot of the YouTube videos that I watch, it just looks like so much fun to be able to catch them. Yeah, I know the my buddy that I know that fishes, he caught a pretty big late trout. I would guess it's pretty big. From the picture, it looked big to me. It was, I would say, like, I don't know, 30-something inches maybe, mm -hmm. just from the guessing of how big he was. Um, it looked huge, um, so it looked fun, obviously. They chase your bait out of deep water because they can see so far. So sometimes you'll be able to reel up a bait 20 feet and have the fish just come rifling up right after it and just nail it. And it seems like when you get on the bite, they can be very aggressive and looks like fun to catch. Yeah. Hopefully I can get into some, some ice fishing this year. If it'll ever freeze up here. Jeez. Send some of your weather this way. Send it West. <laughs> Send it back. You can have it. <laughs> we got enough cold. That's like what I was saying when we were up at the Lake of the Woods, it was super cold, but then three days later we had, 30 degree weather out there it's like honestly to be able to plan a good fishing trip with warm weather and a scenario where the fish are probably going to bite pretty well usually they don't bite well those first couple days after a big cold front hits you almost have to just not plan out your trips in advance and just have guys that are have the ability to just pick up and go on any given weekend that's like the best way to, to plan a trip because it almost always seems to happen where if you plan a trip two three weeks in advance the weather that looked like it might be okay turns into just a nasty cold front like the day that you go up and you got to drive in snow and the roads aren't good. You got to drive 50 miles an hour. That's like me every time I try to plan a deer hunt. The weather goes south in a hurry. Yep. You just got to go. Hey, the weather's yeah, going to be exactly. good this weekend. Take off work. So I imagine you're probably going to have a few more questions once you actually decide to. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully, 
hopefully we can get in on something and then like i said we can touch back and have part two you know i can talk about my newbie experience and question a lot more and wonder what the heck i was actually doing on a frozen pond fishing through a little hole well if you tell me you have a budget of like three grand i can build you a pretty good uh, gear list to get you started yeah hopefully that's <laughs> what it'll come down to i'll get hooked and be like all right now what do i need tell me what i need cool sounds like a wrap for this episode then as always for the listeners make sure to follow the sportsman's nation podcast network on your favorite streaming app and social media outlets iTunes reviews are always appreciated as are messages letting us know how we're doing or what you'd like to hear in the future.